Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I'm speaking to a very special guest about how to tackle extremism. The guest is a new ECFR council member, Brendan Cox. He has been working on this topic for the last couple of decades. For a long time, uh, was involved internationally in various non-governmental organisations. He set up a pioneering campaigning group called Crisis Action, which worked with a lot of agencies, uh, raising awareness of genocide and mass human rights abuses and conflict situations in uh, all sorts of different continents, then went to work in uh, domestic politics, uh, working on the same issues for Gordon Brown when he was Prime Minister, and uh, also worked at Save the Children. Um, After that, he started to work on the refugee crisis and to try and understand public opinion in different European countries and how progressives could go about fighting against the extremist and intolerant politics which had emerged as a result of the large flows of refugees and the political mobilisation against them. And in the course of this process, he ended up having to deal with extremism in his personal life as well, when his wife, Jo Cox, was tragically murdered um, just over a year ago. And since then, he has thrown himself once again into this campaign against extremism, bringing together all of his campaigning nows, his uh, forensic analysis of where public opinion is in different countries, and has inspired people from right across Britain, but also in many other countries, to take this battle against extremism to a different level in their local communities and has set up a a new foundation in Joe's honour called More in Common. And I'm going to talk to him both about that experience, but also about his thinking about the challenge of extremism, what we know about extremists in different European countries and what lessons we can learn going forward. Brendan, um, why don't you start by telling us how you see the the challenge at the moment? Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I I think um, one of my worries at the moment is that we've gone from this period sort of post-Trump and post-Brexit when everybody uh, was seized with the importance of combating this threat of growing intolerance and growing hatred uh, and post Macron, post uh, the Dutch elections, to an extent even po- post the UK election with the disappearance of UKIP, there's a danger that a sort of complacency sets in and that we assume um, that actually the problem that we uh, were all very worried about has in some way gone away or the, turn has, the, the, the corner has been turned. And I think the reality is, is that the underlying insecurities, economic, physical, cultural, uh, that are driving this are there for the long term. And I think there may be lots of tactical uh, victories and uh, electoral victories um, that build momentum and set us in the right direction. But I think the underlying um, trends haven't changed. And I think until they do, and until we're better placed to be able to cope with those, I think we need to uh, remain seized by this because I think it is something that's going to be with us for the next, you know, I think it's going to be a generational struggle rather than something that 
uh, uh, we deal with on on one or even two or three or four electoral electoral cycles. So, what, how would you define those underlying trends which are still there? So, for me, um, the way I talk about it is three insecurities. So that's the um, economic insecurity, which probably gets the most um, focus. And that's about people who feel a loss of control over their own economic circumstances. That might be um, uh, because of uh, cost of living increases. It might be about um, uh, sort of measuring ourselves vis-a-vis developing countries that are doing increasingly well. More often, it's just about people's sense of whether their kids are going to be better off than, uh, than they were. So that's one set of insecurities. The second set is around physical insecurity and I think the the sort of poster child for that is Islamist extremism and terrorism um, that has a impact obviously not just in in the events but in terms of shaping narratives and giving people uh, uh, I I think a um, a, a, instilling a concern fear and in some cases a panic um, uh, amongst people who the vast majority will never ever experience it, but it has a, an impact and is di- designed to have an impact beyond that. And then the third insecurity is uh, slightly more amorphous, which is cultural insecurity. And that might be about you, the fact that your high street is changing, it might be your sense that your community has changed, you don't recognise people in the way that you used to. And that's the sort of stuff that Trump tapped into very well. So th- th- those for me are the insecurities, but then on top of that, was the context, and that context is one where you have fast declining uh, faith in institutions of all sorts, whether that's the media, whether that's politics, um, uh, whether that's civil society. Um, You have communities that feel more fragmented and less close than they they used to. And then on top of all of that, so you've got those insecurities, that context, and then you've got an increasingly skilled and uh, increasingly vocal group of extremists who are using, preying on those insecurities um, and uh, trying to, to build a very simple and very compelling narrative, which is that we can fix all of this uh, simply by throwing out Muslims or migrants or refugees or whatever it is, it's different in, in different countries. So that, I think, is the context that we're fighting in. And I think that we haven't yet uh, honed our response to that. I think... One of the really interesting things about what's happened over the last couple of years is there's a sort of new consensus that's emerged that politics now is no longer about left versus right, but about open versus closed. It's on the front page of The Economist. It's what Macron and um, Le Pen symbolised with their respective campaigns. But do you think that's the right way to frame things or do you think that's a losing proposition for people who believe in open societies? Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily a losing proposition, but I think the the mistake that we make is too often assuming that there are two poles, and that's where people are, and that we live in this divided society where either you're a cosmopolitan, globalist, multiculturalist, or you're a nativist, nationalist. Um, that's what Le Pen said. She said it's, it's about globalism versus patriotism, this election. Exactly, and and I think that is not true. And actually, if you look at the data, one of the things we've been working on, France and Germany in particular, is detailed segmentation studies to understand actually how public attitudes cluster. And what's clear from all of that is that those polls represent a uh, a minority of public opinion. And actually, so you know, in most countries, very roughly speaking, you have about 20-25% of people who are your sort of cosmopolitan liberals. 
you have about 20-25% of people who are sort of angry and feel very disillusioned and have turned that into anger against others. And then by far the biggest chunk is what we talk about as being the anxious middle, which is roughly 50% in most countries. And that's where the, the conversation is. And certainly to your, to your point, you will never get those people into a position where, you know, if you force people to choose between no immigration, for example, and open borders, they will choose no immigration. So, you know, framing it in that way is unbelievably unhelpful. But actually, if you frame it as, you know, us... Um, uh, taking each, each country playing its role, uh, each country adhering to uh, the standards and rights that we fought for in the past, that, that, that sense of rights and responsibilities in particular, I think is still very powerful and that you can get majority support for. So I'd like to go a bit more into what arguments are going to work, but maybe before we do that, because I know you did polling in eight different countries and we're looking at it, they're segmenting the populations there. Were there wide divergences from that basic model that you laid out? I think the, the really interesting things from that were uh, how in most countries, and there's a couple of exceptions which I'll talk about in a second, how in most countries um, the biggest uh, difference is age and education, and that tallies obviously with, with lots of the other sort of political polling that's happening. The, I think one of the interesting things is that in France that's not true, in Hungary and Poland that's not true. So actually, um, their young people tend to be the, the most socially regressive and most uh, right-wing on a lot of these issues. So uh, I think it's particularly interesting that France is beginning to look a little bit more like Hungary and Poland than it is Germany or even the UK, Spain or Italy. So that's something which I think we, we need to be worried about because in most of the countries you can see as the demographics shift and as people age, you know, uh, what's been happening in terms of a sort of growing liberal trend will continue. In France, I think we need to worry about whether that's... Whether so in France, the, the social liberal segment has not grown. Is it stalled or is it shrinking? What's interesting about it is, is the age profile of it. Right. So younger people are more likely to vote Front National. Younger people yeah. are more likely to have negative attitudes to... Um, and in terms of what happened over time, Again, France is, like, so in most countries, to talk about polls is quite unhelpful. And in France, it's also broadly unhelpful, but it's more true in France than it is in other countries. So you have a bigger group of the sort of uh, cosmopolitans, and you have a bigger group of the angry hostiles, and there's less people in between than in Germany, for example, where very few people would define themselves at either end of the, of the spectrum, and the vast majority of people define themselves in the middle. The other interesting thing... Uh, I think in Germany is uh, there you have this this sort of this additional segment which you don't have in most other countries, which are people who have deep um, concerns and reservations about, for example, Merkel's policy towards uh, refugees and letting in the the million people that that she did. Um, they are completely confident that it's going to fail, but they entirely support it, which is this weird sort of it's particularly over sixty five sort of post Second World War and Second World War generation who have this sense of Germany's duty in the, in the world, even if they're pretty sceptical about um, being able to follow through on that um, at a practical level. Okay, so what's to be done? Yeah, so I think the, the, the first thing is, is not to pretend that there's any panacea or this is something that you can sort of flick a switch. I think, you know, those insecurities and those contexts mean that this is, and the reason I talk about this as being something that we need to engage in for the long term, 
that those trends and that context is not going to shift in the near term. So yeah. economic insecurity is going to continue. Um, some physical insecurity is going to continue. Cultural change is definitely going to continue. Now, there's there's policies in each of those areas. Could, do, maybe before we go into the policies, because yeah. from what I understand from what you're saying, it, apart from France, in most countries, a there's a possible majority in favour of uh, even in France, yeah. B that's growing. So the the challenge in the kind of short to medium term is how you stop people mobilising against it. Exactly, yeah. So, so I think what's happened in the last period is not that the far right have recruited lots more people to their cause. What they've done is they've mobilised very effectively. Um, one of the interesting things actually in, in, in doing some of this research is the, the far right are incredibly good, despite hating people from other countries, incredibly good at working with people from other countries to share their analysis, share their learnings, in a way, frankly, that the political centre is very poor. So, you know, Wilders, for example, spent a lot of time working with um, AFD in Germany to skill them up in terms of, you know, this is how you should talk about Muslims, this is how you should talk about migration, etc. And that cooperation just doesn't exist in most places, I think, in terms of the centre ground of politics, because they see each other predominantly as competitors. Anyway, um, so what, what's happened, as I said, is that they have mobilised and they've positioned themselves as a silent majority. And what we have to do, I think, as progressives on this, is to mobilise our own constituency much more effectively. At the moment, our constituency is incredibly uh, diffuse, bifurcated, split into increasingly small niches. So you have a movement that works on migrants that doesn't work on refugee rights. You have a, a, a groups that work on refugees but don't work on uh, other rights. So how you build a more sort of popular united front against that extremism, I think, is a real challenge. And, and there's some huge opportunities there because actually, if you think about uh, the allies that we've got on our side, whether that is in most countries, you've got the major trade unions and the big businesses. You've got the faith groups and you've got the football clubs. You've got this incredible range of organisations. And if we can mobilise them, the power is incredibly, uh, is incredibly strong. But we fail to do that until now. But isn't the problem also that progressives are very good at reaching out to the 25% who are already converted? and not so good at talking to the 50% of It's, exact, it's exactly right. So the first thing I think we need to organise our own forces. Yeah. Second thing we need to do is then to use that power base to talk to what in most countries is more than half people, which is that anxious middle. And we consistently get that approach wrong. We talk down to those uh, to that anxious middle. And the anxious middle, like th these are people who have concerns about immigration. They worry about pressure on public services, pressures on jobs, etc. But they're not racist. They have no time for hate. They have no time for any of the extremism. But what's happened is, one, the sort of liberal constituency talk down to them. Two, they often don't talk to them at all. They spend their time in their echo chambers. Very few NGOs, for example, actually communicate with those anxious middle. They spend their time inside the 25%. And then also in terms of how we communicate and how we engage, we consistently get it wrong. We talk in statistics, we talk um, uh, in a sort of rational-based discourse rather than building our own stories and our narratives. A lot of these debates are very emotional for people. You know, it's about, you know, I feel that my community is getting less close because of change, for example. And we respond to that by saying, don't worry, the average migrant brings a 0 0.0. 3% increase in GDP over the next uh, 20 years of, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And we have to get much better at building our own stories and our own narratives because what's happening at the moment is the people who are building stories and narratives that appeal to the anxious middle are from the far right 
And what we need to get much better is building our own powerful narratives. And actually, when you do that, when you've seen there be narratives created, which often happens actually um, in horrific circumstances, um, the picture of Alan Kurdi, uh, the three-year-old uh, toddler on the uh, Greek beach, had a real impact in terms of shifting the debate For and narrative. For about five minutes, though. Yeah, so th- th- there's, we need to get much better at consistently telling our own stories. We can't, we can't rely on there being those sorts of incidents. But also, if you look in response to attacks in yeah. London or Manchester or whatever else, again, what happens in response to those is this sense of solidarity and this sense of closeness. Yeah. So you can't... Um, I, I think that that narrative is one that resonates very strongly with people. It's just not a narrative that we, I think, engage with on a regular basis. If we take the Island Kurdi moment, it was extraordinary. I mean, those pictures were heartbreaking. There was a real uh, moment when the, the debate around the refugee crisis changed. Um, and there were a number of, of NGOs that organised around it. And there was, yeah. uh, you know, in the UK, for example, there was... Uh, a bill put through to, to take a certain number of child refugees, etc. But A, it was you know very small scale compared to the, the crisis itself, mm. but also it didn't really last very long and in a way seemed to be a classic thing which was reaching out to the converted rather than to the white. I mean, what now that we've got a bit of distance from that, do you think there are lessons to learn from, from that? Yeah, I, I think the, the main lesson to learn um, is that when you can connect with people on a personal level and an emotional level about the, the, the stories of what, for example, the refugee crisis is doing to people, or it could be what Islamophobia is doing to people, or then you can engage people and you can shift people's attitudes. So it wasn't actually, if you look at the, most of the data under the Alan Kurdi um, picture, is it actually had an impact on those anxious middle. Uh, so it had no impact on the on on the extremes, but quite a few people, I think, um, in the studies that I've seen, about sort of ten percentage point shift, which is pretty pretty significant. Now the issue is is that then we all went back to back to type and started talking statistics rather than stories again, and so we, what that showed, I think, is that when you can connect with people emotionally, you can tell a very different story and engage people in a different way, and we have to find more ways to do that. We can't just wait for these horrific incidents to happen and we have to actually get much better at building our own stories and telling our own narrative. So what stories could work with the anxious middle? So I think it depends on on what issue. Um, I think the framings that work, which are really clear, is about um, inclusive patriotism. So what is it that's about our country? Because a lot of these debates are about identity. And so one of the best ways to respond to them is by telling our own story about what... Um, uh, what our own national identity means to us in this context. So, for example, you know, the, uh, the proud history that France has, uh, taking just France as an example for a second, of, um, uh, of the revolution, of the principles on which it's based, um, that resonates with a lot of that anxious middle in a way that if you start the narrative somewhere else, it doesn't. And then the other bit, which is a, a critical bit, is to talk uh, not just in terms of right, but also rights and responsibilities. I mean, obviously, that's a... Uh, sound like Tony Blair. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. That's my, my slight <laughs> worry. Um, but that, um, that rights and responsibilities framing, so i.e., of co- yeah, if, if, you, if you use messages along the lines of if 
you are a migrant, for example, or refugee or whatever else, and you come to this country and you pay your taxes and you learn the language, then of course you can be as French or German or British as, as I am. You get majorities across the population in all of the countries that, uh, that we've tested those messages with. What people um, uh, dislike is this sense of um, the focus on the other and other people's rights rather than also that that responsibility comes alongside it. And I think the other thing, you know, one of the mistakes that, again, I think we make as, as liberals too often is to fixate on difference and diversity rather than talk actually about the things that we as countries, we as communities have in common. And what that does is it reduces people's sense of social solidarity and it makes it harder to make a narrative about inclusion in that context. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the, the huge lessons of the American elections. If you base your entire election, as the Clinton camp did, on identity politics and empowering women and uh, every other kind of diverse group, then you're likely to have a counter-mobilisation to make America white again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know... Again, it's not a binary choice. It's not that either we talk about diversity or we talk about sameness. But we, I think, as as liberals, almost never talk about sameness and almost um, uh, never talk about commonality. So I think that's our challenge for how we get better at doing that. And um, as you know, in the in uh, the last period, we on the anniversary of Joe's murder uh, had what we call the great get together, which was asking people across the UK to get together with their neighbours, share food, and celebrate the things that we have in common. Now, the response to that was absolutely huge. Now, of course, partly that's because of, of Joe and people's sympathy and engagement, but I think it's something more fundamental, which is that people are yearning for and looking for opportunities to bring their communities together, to focus on the things that bind us rather than the things that divide us. We as countries are very bad at providing that, and I think that's one of the things, certainly one of the things I'm going to focus on moving forward, is how do we find more moments and opportunities to do that, because that changes the way that you see your own community. It reduces the, the brittleness, the fragility of your own community, and it makes you much uh, stronger to be able to cope with some of the challenges which are coming down the, down the pipe. Part of it was also just your example. I mean, it's been incredible watching the, the dignified way that you've dealt with your grief and that you've, you've tried to make something positive come out of the most horrific set of circumstances ever. And I think a lot of people were just responding to, to that on a raw emotional level to, to watch what you've been doing and, and the energy that you've put into bringing these ideas and values that were so obviously so close to, to Joe's life as well into the public domain both here and internationally. Can you talk a bit more about what, how you're planning to take that forward? Because we've um, seen some manifestations of it, like this this day where lots of communities came together and it was just after terrorist attacks in London and Manchester. So I think they were, it felt even rawer than, mm. than the anniversary alone um, yeah. would have made it. Yeah, so, so, so for me, you know, Joe and I were talking about this. I started this work, as, as you mentioned in the intro, a couple of years ago. So Joe and I each night would talk about um, what we felt was going on and would sort of diagnose the, the problem and think about what we could do about it. Her from Parliament, me obviously uh, from outside. Um, and so I'm very clear um, about what she uh, thought about these issues. And I'm also very clear, having thought about it quite hard myself for the last couple of years, about where to apply myself. 
And so that, you know, is, is partly about um, within the UK specifically trying to, you know, just what I mentioned then, trying to find more moments and opportunities that build stronger communities. I believe, believe that uh, community is in and of itself a good and a positive thing. Uh, I think lots of people who are in that, that anxious middle are yearning for that uh, and looking for that and it um, builds the resilience of communities to be able to cope with uh, difficult events, whether that's like a, a, a London or Manchester bombing or whether that's actually just change within their, their communities. But also, alongside it being a good in all of its own right, I think it also means that societies find it easier to be open. I think when you're close, it's easier to be open. And I think when you're fragmented, people are much more within their, within their shells. So that's one set of things. And then the other set of priorities is I'm working with um, colleagues and my co-founders across France, Germany, uh, the US, as well as the UK, to think about how do we begin to shift this narrative and what are the stories that we tell and how do we skill up other organisations to be able to tell this, these stories and build the narratives that bring our communities together rather than push them apart. So it's a pretty big agenda and you talked about it before as a, as a generational agenda. Can I ask you another question because you sort of worked at all sorts of different levels, in a grass, at a very grassroots level for NGOs internationally but also you worked in, in Downing Street. <laughs> how do you see those different elements fitting together in this? I mean, how much of this is about grassroots mobilization and, civil, and civic responses? How much of it is a responsibility for formal politics and for political leaders to, to actually take the fight on rather than uh, running away from it or, or trying to emulate the arguments of, of the more populist parties? Yeah. So I think that um, you know government has a huge responsibility both to try to address some of those drivers of insecurity, uh, whether that's cultural, whether that's economic, whether that's physical. So there's a whole set of policy responses that we need in that space, and government needs to be in the in the driving seat a lot of that, and political parties and others, think tanks and others, innovating um, uh, and coming up with new solutions to those challenges, um, but. And this is the, the the focus of what I'm doing. You know, I, I think that a lot of this is about communities, and I think governments are the often the worst place people to try to build that sense of community solidarity. And you know, in response to most of these challenges, whether it's a refugee crisis or migration or openness, we can blame government as much as we like. But actually, the thing that we need to do, I think, is to change the public's mind uh, to engage the public to mobilize the public to change the context I think politicians respond to context and of course you can get uh, political leaders who are particularly visionary and lead in a particular direction but if you look for example at the response to the refugee crisis across countries it's followed in every country public opinion before so Germany uh, incredibly positive um, uh, response very proactive response very supportive public before this happened very uh, optimistic public. Sweden, exactly the same. UK, very hostile public, very hostile government. France, hostile government, host hostile public. So I, I think the idea that we can look to... So there's definitely a sort of do-no-harm approach with politics on these issues, I think. And I think we should always try to get those politicians to play the, to the best of their instincts of the country rather than to the worst. But I think if we put our eggs in the basket of waiting for that leadership, I think we'll be waiting for a long time. Well, thank you very much, Brendan. It's, it's been amazing talking to you. And as I said earlier, I think you've been 
not just one of the deepest thinkers about this, but the way that you've gone about actually taking these ideas and turning them into reality is, is, is inspirational. Um, we tend to end our podcast with a bookshelf segment where we recommend get people to recommend uh, books that they've been reading. But I know you, you've probably spent more time writing a book <laughs> <laughs> than, than reading them uh, recently. But maybe you could um, both, if you want to talk a bit about, about your book, which you've uh, recently finished, but also um, when you were doing the research about these issues, are there any articles or other things that you found particularly interesting or thought-provoking? Yeah. Um, so as, as you say, so the um, with what happened over the last year, and then I've got uh, two small kids, uh, currently six and four, uh, and then with writing my own book, my um, my uh, bandwidth for reading has been less than it normally would be. Um, so on on my book, I mean, what what my book does is is try to tell a bit of Joe's story. I mean, one of the things that in the aftermath of what happened is you know lots of people um, contacted me who I didn't know and and wanted to know more about Joe. And it felt rather than having conversations with all of them, it'd be better to write it down. Um, so it's partly about that, but it's also actually about what made Jo who she was and the values and the instincts that underpinned her. You know, her story is somebody, uh, very working class background, first to go to university, um, somebody who struggled with her own issues about sort of self-confidence, but nevertheless overcame them, put herself forward into politics and had a... a a big impact in a short period of time. Somebody who is intensely sort of proud to be from Yorkshire, patriotic of uh, of being English and British, but also passionately pro-European. I think that's a, an important story. So that's uh, that's the um, the book. And also for me, just on a very personal level, it was part of dealing with what um, with what had happened and find it difficult to talk about it and writing about it um, was my own um, way of processing it. I think. Uh, the other book, the the other book I'm reading at the moment, um, which will also be a very depressing read for for people, is uh, Shel Sandberg's Plan B, um, which is about the loss that she experienced with her her husband, um, and pretty much all the books I'm reading at the moment are about grief, either in children or adults. So yeah, uh, sorry not to have a more optimistic end to the uh, podcast. Well, thank you very much. Brendan, we will put links up to uh, the to your book, to the More in Common website, and to some other resources that people can use if they want to get in touch with you and get involved in all of the activities that you're launching across Europe um, and maybe even further eventually. Um, it's been really fascinating talking to you and. Uh, if you have any comments on this podcast or on any other podcast, please write to me at mark.leonard.ecfr.eu. It would be great if you could also give us a review and a ranking on iTunes as it drives lots of people to listen to the podcast. But in the meantime, from Brendan Cox and my, myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Bulin Goini. Thank you.